The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Chapter 2. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, we have just heard sung a song about your marvelous nature, holy and sovereign, an expression of a desire to come into your chamber and yield all of life to you and lay it all at your feet. And I trust, Lord, that because many of us gathered here this morning are your people, that something in that resonates with us and we, we know something of who you are and we want something, something akin to, to yieldedness and surrender. But often we find ourselves inhibited or held back with something that needs to be cut away. We who are your people, you have so graciously and kindly circumcised our hearts and cut away our sinful flesh. And yet, Lord, I find in my life and in our lives we are in need of still more cutting away. So by your Spirit, I plead with you, Father, would you, in a new way, circumcise our hearts today? Cut away that which inhibits us, that which holds us back, that which suppresses us, that which we cling to in sin, that which is just trouble for us. We don't know how to deal with it. By your Spirit, would you give us the ability to lay aside those things that hinder us and the sin that so easily entangles and run hard after you? The song said to come into your chamber, to dance before you. God, you must do this. As you say, it is by your Spirit. It is not by our words, it is not by our efforts. Not if we hold our tongue just right and say just the, the right phrases. By your Spirit, you must fall upon us as individuals and as a church and change us. And God, I pray that you would in some way use this chapter in Deuteronomy this morning to do that. By the power of your Spirit, use your Word to effect change. You call us in the text today to wholehearted allegiance, the consistent note that you sound for us throughout this book. We hear that. By your Spirit, Father, cut away that which holds us back from wholehearted allegiance. You require it of us. It's what we really want. But we need your Spirit to fall on us and do that. Please be gracious this morning to open up your word. Give me some ability to explain it. Give us each individually some ability to hear it and understand it. And speak through it. Speak to individual people here, Lord. Open their eyes in the particular ways that each individual needs it. Open their eyes. Inhabit us here, Lord. Do not permit us to just carry on singing and talking unchanged. May it never be. Be gracious to us, Father, Son, and Spirit, I pray. And I pray this in Christ's name for His glory. For this is His church. That He would be the center of it. That He would be honored in it. For His glory would you do that. And for our good because that is what our hearts are made for. In the name of Christ, for His glory and for our good, I pray this. Amen.
Last week in the book of Deuteronomy, we worked through chapter 9 and saw there Moses beginning by issuing marching orders to Israel. He told them, today is the day, now is the time to get up and cross over the river Jordan and enter into the land and take it. And the one who goes before you as a consuming fire is going to be me, the Lord. I'm going to go and give you this land, and so therefore you will dispossess all of these nations that live there currently. So go. That's, that's the instruction that he gives to them, a launch and a promise of success. That's where the chapter begins, but it immediately detours into a very frank discussion about how Israel in no way whatsoever merited God's blessing, earned it, deserved it, merited God's blessing. In verse 4, and then again in verse 5, and then again in verse 6, he repeatedly says, not by your own righteousness. Take this to heart. Don't be confused by it. Get this straight. Not by your own righteousness am I giving you the land. There's, there's nothing in you whatsoever that merits this, that has earned it. You don't have any rightness before me. In fact, from day one, you have been a stubborn people set against me. And then the rest of the chapter sets out to prove that point, recounting in particular the events at Mount Horeb, where God made the covenant with the people. Mount Horeb is also called Mount Sinai. At Mount Horeb, He made the covenant with the people, spoke audibly out of the cloud, giving them the Ten Commandments, and almost before the ink had dried, they've broken it. Moses is up there for 40 days. He brings down the tablets and finds... Lo and behold, they've made an idol, a golden calf. And so he throws down the tablets, breaking them, symbolizing in the physical realm what's happened in the spiritual realm. They've broken covenant with God. And they have aroused his wrath. He is filled with hot anger towards them. They are a wicked people, verse 27 says. Just like the nations that they are going to dispossess, they're just like them. They're just like everybody else on the earth, us included, a stubborn people before God with nothing to contribute whatsoever. And so chapter 9, again and again again, line after line, like the whole rest of the law, crushes us. This is its goal, to crush us under the requirements of the law. To say, this is what God requires and you have no righteousness, you have no righteousness, you have no righteousness. It crushes us under that. And it should then also, if you have eyes to see it, lift you up in hope and joy. It means to do both. It means to lift you up in hope and in joy also as it points you away from any self-righteousness that doesn't exist towards another one who is full of righteousness and will give it to those who trust Him. Moses goes before God, steps between the people and God and pleads for them. Have mercy. Be gracious. Overlook their sin. And God says, I will do that. He overlooks in grace, overlooks the sin to set it on another one at the cross. He's gracious towards them in an amazing, stunning, overwhelming way. He is that kind of God who wants to crush us under our own self-perceived righteousness, show us it's not there, and then show us, but graciously, I have provided righteousness for you if you'll come to it. Come. Does both of those things in that, in that chapter. That's what's going on in chapter 9. As I said last week, chapter 9 flows directly into our chapter for this morning. The story really isn't completed until chapter 10, which we're going to look at today. So we need to, to look back at that and see the remarkable grace of God who overlooks the wickedness of His people, who overlooks the sin and still graciously sticks with them, forgives them. You need to see that as we come into chapter 10 this morning. Because a few more of the details are going to be filled out. The story is going to be completed. But then also in chapter 10, God is going to present the, the companion truth, if you will. God in chapter 9 is a God of grace who forgives people and overlooks their sin. 
And in chapter 10, he issues requirements to them. Both of these things together. Clearly, the requirements do not make the people righteous in his eyes. Chapter 9 is really clear on that. But having overlooked their sin and forgiven them, he requires something of them. That's our text for this morning in chapter 10. The God of grace is also a God of requirement. Let me read the text. Deuteronomy chapter 10. At that time the Lord said to me, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made, and there they are, as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Barath ben Ejakan to Moserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgada, and from Gudgada to Japhatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, forty days and forty nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The word of the Lord, Deuteronomy 10. The first half of this chapter connects back to the events of chapter 9, while the second half launches us into a long discussion that goes all the way through next week in chapter 11. And so again here, we're kind of bridging two sections. We're going to move rather briefly through the first half of the chapter and spend the bulk of our time in the second half. Moses has already told us in chapter 9 how he went up and he interceded before the Lord and and pleaded with Him and God answered And much of the first half of the chapter is establishing that, yes, in fact, that did happen. And it it did work, if you will. God heard him and had mercy on the people. And so we see some of these details here about God initiating a renewing of the covenant. 
another set of tablets. Make another set, bring them up here, and I will, I will do it again. I will write the commandment on the tablets, just like I did before. And then you make an ark so we can put them in something, because it's a little note of affirmation. It's, it's going to last. We're going to have to be able to carry this around. It's going to abide for a while. I'm making a covenant, and it's going to last. Furthermore, in some bookkeeping notes in verses 6 to 9, we find out that that Aaron didn't die. Moses prayed for him, and, and Aaron was not struck down at that point either. He lasted many more years and then died at another place. He didn't enter the promised land, but God did not strike him there at Mount Horeb. And because we have an ark, we've got some various details related to the Levites who are going to carry the ark around and how they deal with that. All this is, is evidence that God's setting the people up for the long haul. He's not going to strike them dead at the moment. He has forgiven. He has truly, he really has overlooked their sin. He has been a God of grace. He's unwilling to destroy them, says in verse 10. And so then in verse 11, he issues the marching orders again, closing off this large section, just like at the beginning of chapter 9. Okay, now, move ahead. I will give you the land. Despite what's happened, I'm going to go before you and give you the land. It closes off that section. And then verse 12, the flashback to Horeb ends and Moses is, is addressing them and is exhorting the people. So follow the flow of these chapters here. You have no righteousness of your own, but God is a God of grace who's going to overlook your sin. And then, now, but what does he require? Verse 12. And he does require... He is a great God of grace. He has made and kept and sustained and remade a covenant with you. But do not presume upon that. Do not say, well then, I can do just whatever I please, whenever I please. This is, this is great. He's going to overlook my sin. No requirements. No, that's not the case. God requires something of you. So in verse 12, what does the Lord require of you? It sounds like Micah 6, which probably is drawn from this requires five things that are really all just one thing. Just like we've seen in the past, you've got many commandments that can really all be boiled down to the commandment. Five things that are all about the same thing. Fear the Lord. Walk in His ways. In the middle, love Him. Serve Him with all of your heart and all of your soul. Keep His commandments and His statutes. Sum that up. What does He require? Allegiance. He requires from His people wholehearted allegiance. That begins in the heart. The love and fear, we see that in every chapter. Love and fear, fear and love, love and fear. And then it flows out into serve and walk with and hold fast to and keep. It should sound completely familiar. They're, they're all over this book. He requires this. It is the mark of his people. And how does he then go about supporting or encouraging that sort of wholehearted allegiance? Well, he immediately lifts up their eyes to the Lord. Very next verse. Behold, verse 14, behold, look, get this. The Lord is the sovereign one, the ruler of everything. He stretches out God's realm to include everything. Heaven and the heavens of the heavens. A little poetic flair there. Probably what he means is sky. Notice at the very end it says the stars of heaven. Heaven in the singular probably means sky. And the heaven of the heavens, the, the heavenly realm, the earth, everything that's in it, everything, everywhere belongs to Him. He's the Lord over all. All of it. He owns everything. So, so in a very real way, all of the people on the earth are his people. It's fair to say. He made them. He, he owns everybody. Everybody's accountable to him. In some way, everybody is his. Everything is his. And yet, verse, verse 15, he set his heart in love on somebody in particular, on Abraham. Abraham, not his brothers. He had two brothers. Abraham. And then Isaac, not Ishmael, though Ishmael was firstborn. 
And then Jacob, not Esau, though Esau was firstborn, he set his love on the fathers and chose after them a people. His treasured and special possession. So everything, everything is his. But these ones are the ones on whom he has set his love. His people. Therefore, this people has an obligation. He requires something. That wholehearted allegiance, or in the words of verse 16, circumcise, therefore, because he set his love on you and made you his people, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. If we were reading this straight through and we didn't have a, a week's break between 9 and 10, we would, that word stubborn would hop to mind. Three times in the last chapter, he accused them of stubbornness, stiff-neckedness. That's what people are. From birth, we're stubborn against him. Stiff-necked. We will not bow our head to him and we will not turn our head to listen to him. Stubborn. Because he chose to set his love on the fathers and chose you after him, therefore circumcise the force in your hearts and get rid of the stubbornness, that the resistance against him. Don't be that way. Cut away that old nature. He requires what marks his true people is a true allegiance. Circumcision of the heart. For he is the God of gods and Lord of lords. Wonder where the book of Revelation got the idea to call Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Surely, surely it's, it's referencing some of the things said about Caesars in that day, but it connects back to here, especially. The Lord is God of gods, Lord of Lords. He is the ruler. You hear that again, the second sort of note here. He made everything, and He's the King of all the kings. He's the one in charge. And what is his reign like? He's, he's just. He can't bribe him. He's not partial. He's the perfect king. And then, that, that language is up here. He is awesome. He is mighty. He is great. The Lord of Lords. The King of Kings. And then it, interestingly, I, I think it's interesting, it drops down and becomes very specific about a particular thing. He's just, he's not partial, can't be bribed. Shown in this right here, how he treats widow, orphans, sojourners. I find this interesting because the language is lofty and grand, cosmic about making the heavens, and, and then it drops down to widow, orphan, sojourner. And that, I, I say it like that because that's almost a little trilogy. As you look through the law, it's going to come up again in chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. As you work through the Bible, the Old Testament as a whole, widow, orphan, sojourner, very often is a little pairing, or say pairing with three, a little tri-pairing of categories of people. Sojourners, obviously, are people who are foreigners. They're not native Jews, but they live amongst the community. Widows and orphans, you know what they are. They're treated as a single unit because if you think about how society works back then, generally speaking, if you have a, a married man, a married woman, and kids, and they are connected to the, the societal structure, the latter, they're taken care of. But the widow, orphan, sojourner exists outside of that line and is in danger of falling through the cracks and being hurt, lost, deprived, destroyed in some way, taken advantage of, abused, just overlooked. They lack a champion. The widow, orphan, sojourner are in danger. They are the vulnerable ones in society. And so this great and mighty cosmic God shows He's impartial and just and awesome by caring for the vulnerable ones who are in need. I think it's going to be important for us this morning. Let's move on to the text. So he says, I love the sojourner, and I provide for the sojourner's needs, and then turns it right away, you also then love the sojourner. Why? Again, he roots it 
turning it right back to Him. Calling them to fear and serve Him because, the last couple of verses, He is your praise, He is your God who has done marvelous and amazing things for you, delivering you out of vulnerable status when you were a sojourner, delivering you from slavery, bringing you into this land, and you've seen all kinds of marvelous stuff from Him. He's your God, He's your praise, He demands your full allegiance. Shown especially in how you care for the vulnerable. That's the text. What are we to make of that? Well, let me try to capture it in, in a, a brief summary that then I'm going to unpack and make my usual two observations from. So here, here's my summary sentence for this morning. The God of grace requires and enables changed hearts in his people. So go to him in humble faith. The God of grace requires and enables changed hearts in his people. So go to him in humble faith. Requiring and enabling, or I'm going to break this into two parts here. We'll start with what he requires. First observation, God requires that his people be circumcised in heart for allegiance to him. It's a requirement. He requires that we be circumcised in heart, which is a metaphor, obviously, for a work on a heart that changes something in here, that causes a dramatic change in the heart. Can I understand this metaphor here? And it leads to allegiance in him. Obviously, I'm drawing this point from verse 16, where Moses commands the people to be circumcised, not just in the flesh, but in the heart. And he's telling them to do this, so clearly it's what's required of them. So let's try to work on that a little bit while attempting to be somewhat discreet. Physically speaking, circumcision is the cutting away of skin. And it would have been off of a part of the man's body. And the main purpose for that was not related to health. Sometimes there's discussion in modern days about should we do that or shouldn't we to our baby boys for health reasons. It had nothing to do with health. When God gives it, he says, this is as a sign and seal of the covenant. So when this little boy at at age, day eight, is circumcised, he's being sealed, he's being locked into, placed in the covenant. Not by his own choice, the choice of somebody else. Being placed in the covenant, sealed into it, and it's a sign. To whom? To him. Who sees that part of his body? Several times every day, he sees it and is reminded. Presumably his wife would at some point see it and would be reminded. We are in covenant to him. We belong to someone. He owns us. We're in covenant with God. And the actual cutting away is itself symbolic. Something to think about in that too. Something that is natural from birth. You're born with it. And is on, outwardly speaking, the most inward part of the body. It's it's about as intimate and about as personal and about as inward as you can get while still being on the outside. Something on that intimate part of a person that's with him from birth is cut away, gone, removed. And that's what identifies him as belonging to God, as being one of God's people. So, get that. It's not on some distant extremity, like an elbow or a knee or a toe or something like that. It's on a very inner part of the body, as inner as you can get while still being outer, And it's not just marked like a scar or something. It's cut off and gone. And the fact that it's been cut off and gone is what enables the person to say, Oh, I belong to God. I'm marked in this way as belonging to Him. God instructed Abraham to do this and pass it on to the generations and everybody who's listening to Moses here knows that. But interestingly... If we were to flip ahead to Joshua chapter 5, 
which takes place about a month and a half in, in time back then, about a month and a half after this does, what we find out from the book of Joshua is that none of Moses' audience is actually circumcised. Stubbornly, they'd kind of forgotten that. They'd stopped doing it. And so what happens in Joshua is that they do it for the whole nation on one day. Which must have been interesting. But it's revealing that, that God still wanted that. It was still an important sign and seal. But what Moses is saying here, speaking to an audience that he knows is not circumcised in the flesh, and he says, what does God require of you? Total allegiance. So circumcise yourself in your heart. You can kind of see all the adult men cringing as they know it's coming. But it doesn't come. Because, yeah, God requires that, but God doesn't really require that. God wants that, but He doesn't really want that. What He wants is your heart. Be circumcised in your heart. Cut this thing off of your heart that's been with you from birth. Get rid of it. Remove it so that you're no longer stubborn, but are melted before Me. Humble before Me. Yielded to Me. Verses 12 and 13 on one end, 19 and 20 on the other end say, here's what that looks like. Fear comes out of your heart if it's been circumcised. Love comes out of your heart. Obedience, holding fast to Me, keeping My commandments, serving Me with everything in you comes out of you if it's been circumcised. That's what it looks like. It loves Him above all things. God is the praise of that heart. God is the hope of that heart. He is the affection of that heart. It's yielded to Him. God requires that His people be circumcised in heart for allegiance to Him. Yieldedness. Where the analogy breaks down a little bit is that circumcision physically only happens once. And in the New Testament, we as Christians, we'll get to this a little bit later, have been circumcised. But the analogy breaks down a little bit in that, if we can say this, we need to be continually circumcised. Maybe another cutting analogy might be pruning. We need to be continually pruned, cut away, cut away, cut away, so as to further our growth. That's what He requires of us. Yielding, leading to a yieldedness and allegiance. We've seen that so many times in Deuteronomy. God is after the heart. He's after our allegiance. He wants us to, to love Him and fear Him. And then out of that flows out a life lived in obedience to Him, in submission to Him. We've seen that many times. It's here again, but notice in particular what this text says, the specific thing that this text says about what that changed life would look like. There's a gentle leaning in this passage. Verses 12 and 13, there are those five things that God requires, and the middle one, often when you look at lists, first, last, and middle are are worth looking at. And the middle one is love which should, as we read that, throw us back to the greatest commandment in chapter 6, love the Lord your God. And if we were to look down a little bit in the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God, is really after love out of His people. Love for Him. That's a primary way of describing this allegiance that He requires. So let's follow that word through a little bit. Down in verse 15, God owns everything, but has done what? Has set his love on the fathers and then chosen the line after them. You love him. He has loved you. Therefore, you should love him. Keep moving on. Verse 18. He is just towards the widow and orphan and loves the sojourner. 
probably we should read that as loves the widow orphan sojourner because of how those three are so often paired together. It does not mean he only loves the sojourner and is just only towards the widow and the orphan. He's just towards them and loves them too. He loves the vulnerable, the, the one that's potentially in danger. And then beginning next verse, therefore you love the sojourner. So draw a little triangle here. You, God, sojourner. You love him because he loved you. That's the beginning part. And then also realize he loves the sojourner, so you love the sojourner. I find it interesting. It caused me to stop and look at this, and I wondered, that seems like an interesting addition to a text that's that's high and lofty and is calling out and, and demanding and requiring of us heart allegiance, followed up by obedience, walking in His ways. And the thing that God brings to mind, here's one of my ways I want you to walk in, love the sojourner. What in the world do these needy people have to do with loving God? We love because he first loved us. Two parts of the triangle. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him Whoever loves God must also love his brother. First John. The sojourner technically is not a brother. Brother is referring to those who are the, the saved community. But the point still stands, because a sojourner is in the saved community, and the widow and the orphans would certainly be brothers. And we can also step back a little bit and say, God's not just telling us only to love the brethren. He tells us to love people like He loves people. To love God, to give Him your allegiance, to have Him as your fear, the one who is controlling your vision, the one who is directing how you live, to walk in His ways, in other words, to do what He requires, to have a circumcised heart that is not resistant against Him, requires that we love actively those in need right next door to us. Requires that. He tells us, I'm a lofty, great, and awesome God. Give me all of your heart. Here's something that I'm like. Do this. I love them. You love them. To become wholeheartedly oriented towards God is to become also turned in love towards those He loves. I don't think I'm saying anything here that anybody intellectually disagrees with. After all, it's the two tables of the law, isn't it? First table, love God. Second table, love people. It's the greatest commandment as Jesus expressed it. What's the greatest commandment, Lord? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm not saying anything anybody intellectually disagrees with. We just don't live it. We, and, and if you're one of those 
who is uniquely gifted and uniquely does this, then I'm perhaps I'm not talking to you, and so don't let me hammer you. But for the 99% of the rest of us, we are weak in our love towards others in our midst who are in need. And what I want to emphasize there, we are weak in love towards others in our midst who are in need. From that love then comes actions, like God loves a sojourner and therefore gives him what he needs, says the end of verse 18, I think, giving him food and clothing. Action comes from the love, but the first thing we've got to attack is the love the, the heart affection for those in our midst who are in need. Perhaps not technically widows, orphans, and sojourners, but the point is that there's a, a category of those in need who cannot fend for themselves at the moment for some reason or another. And God says, I have a big heart for those people, and I require it from you too. If you're going to walk after me and be mine, you got, this is what I want you to walk into. This is important for us particularly. It's important for people, but it's important for us particularly as a congregation. I think this is a large weakness of ours. Not in a sense that we're mean. We're not mean. Not in the sense that we're, that we're deliberately offensive or that we put up a sign on the door, you know, if you haven't been coming here for 20 years, don't come. We're not like that. But what happens, I think, and I'm not the best person to judge this because I'm in a different position than everybody else, what I think happens is that many people come and find us to be amicable, kind, happy they're here, welcoming, But if we want to talk about love, which involves sacrifice, which involves actually engaging with people and putting myself out, I don't think we work like that. And again, maybe you do, and bless God if you do. But I don't think we work like that. But we have to not just be nice to the sojourner or don't be mean to the sojourner. Love. Love the one who is in your midst in need. At any given day or week, our church is full of people, and I'm not just talking about visitors, our church is full of people who are in some way or another in need. Run it through. We heard some of the prayer this morning here about different people who have needs for jobs and needs for health stuff. We have, we have people in the church in any given week who are facing family members with deadly diseases. Hearts breaking over that. F- financial hardship where it's, it's frightening. It's not just that I'm out of work this week. It's frightening as to what am I going to do. Marriages that are highly stressed. I mean, marriages across a whole scale of stress. We could go on and on. Now, we, and we have technically some widows, orphans, and sojourners. But we have many people that are in the category of those in need who for some reason at this moment can't carry their own burden all by themselves. Nor are they really supposed to. Not that that's a sign of weakness and we're going to help you till you can do it. We have that. We have people plagued by things in our congregation who move along in silence. Maybe they're ashamed to bring it up. Maybe they know that they won't get a good response if they do bring it up, or they think they won't get a good response if they do bring it up. Maybe they don't know what to do or what to say so they don't bring it up. And we lack this. We lack biblical love. Are are, are we at, at some level... Kind and, and loving in some sense? I, I think so. And I think a lot has changed in this congregation over the last four, five, six years. That, that's a good thing. So I, I don't want to say it's all negative, but it's not, what it, it's, not, it's not what it should be. 
are, are you thinking, are you connecting these two things in your mind? That if, if I am going to be one with a circumcised heart, with wholehearted allegiance to God, what that means is that I must get involved in and love people here. Is that how you're processing this in your mind? Or is it two totally distinct categories? And if it is, that's wrong. The one who says, I love God and does not love his brother, is a liar, says John, the apostle. That's stunning. Is a liar. Not just has misunderstood something. Are you marked by allegiance to God? Which in this context means, are you marked by love for vulnerable people? You take vulnerable off and say, are you marked by love for people? You must be. He requires it of you. It's not his suggestion. It is what he requires. It is a command. And that is a pile of responsibility for me. I, I, I deal with this. I say, he requires that of me? Oh, my word. It can't happen one to two hundred. It's got to be in a smaller context, which is one of the reasons of community groups. Frankly, it's one of the reasons of community groups. It can't happen everybody to everybody to all the same level. It's too much for a person. So that's part of what overloads me. But but another piece that overloads me is that, frankly, I don't think I have it in me to love people like that. God requires it. And thankfully, He also enables it. Which gives me hope and leads us to the second observation. This is where the grace of God shows itself in the concepts we're working with here. God himself, here's my second observation, circumcises us by enabling us to see his glory. He circumcises us. He produces that heart change in us by enabling us to see his glory. This is different than teaching us information about how glorious He is. A huge difference there. It it has to start with that, though. It has to start with information, or another word we might use is doctrine. It has to start with doctrine, and the text clearly starts with doctrine. Look at all these all these different commandments as you walk through here about the allegiance that's required, verses 12 and 13. What does he ground that in? Immediately, behold, look, behold the Lord your God, who is this awesome one who has chosen to love you. So the command to give him allegiance, grounded in, look at God. Does that repeatedly throughout... The command to circumcise is also grounded in that, looking at God. And it's also grounded in verse 17, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Look at God again. The command at the end, to love the sojourner, grounded in, and then serve him and hold fast him, grounded in, he is your praise, he is your God who's done all this for you. Look at him. It begins with, clearly begins with, this is the truth about him. But it, it cannot stop right there. And the problem that we're dealing with in the book of Deuteronomy, that Moses is dealing with in the book of Deuteronomy, is that he knows he has to proceed along the, let me display God before your eyes, that's how you're changed. He knows the New Testament truths about how we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are transformed, becoming more like Him as we behold His glory, 2 Corinthians. He knows that, but he knows he's dealing with blind people. He's holding up a great big picture of God in front of blind people. Jot down, I need to move along here, so jot this down, we're not going to look at it. Jot down chapter 29, verses 2 to 4, and chapter 30, verse 6. And what he says in those two places, 
29, 2-4, you've seen a whole lot, but the Lord your God has not yet given you a heart to see or ears to hear. And then in chapter 30, he says, one day he will, though. Chapter 30, verse 6, one day the Lord himself will circumcise your heart. He himself will do a work. He himself will open eyes. It begins with information, but we need much more than that. We need to be able to see Him. To behold His glory and His grandeur and His goodness. Not just know that He is grand and glorious and good. We need to behold that. And for that to happen, what God says He will do is that He will do a work in our hearts. One day in the future, for us it's in the past. This is what happens in the Gospel. In the Gospel, He circumcises our hearts. He cuts away the sinful flesh. He opens our eyes to enable us to see. It is a circumcision not made by hands, but done by the Spirit. So what what I need to move to here is... to move through some things. What I need to move to here I I hope I pray that what you're hearing now I need to be something. I need to not just know stuff about you, but I need to see. I need to be changed. I need to have love growing in me. And I cannot make that happen. God, help. I hope there is growing in you a taste and a frustration. Both. A taste that says, I need you to do something. And a frustration. The preacher always talks about this. And I can't... He doesn't give me the details to how to make that happen. How do I make that happen? The reason that I don't give you the detail is that there isn't any detail for me to give you. You don't just say this, do this, pray this, ask this. It's not a step to perform. It's a it's a heart attitude that cries out to God and says, You say that circumcision of the heart is by the Spirit. That your Spirit does that in me. And you say that I have been circumcised if I'm in Christ. So I have the Spirit at work in me. And I need that. I need to be cut away a little bit more today. A little bit more today. I need that. You say you give it. Please give it. And that is... If you use those words or not, it doesn't matter because it's not those words. It's not kneeling, you pray this, read this and do this. It's the heart attitude of God, I need this. I need a heart that's changed. To be changed in heart, I need to see you. You have to give sight. Please. And he does that. I've been meditating recently on 1 Thessalonians. In chapters 1 and 2, there's a lot in there about God's love for the Thessalonian Christians. And I'm reading through that and, I, and I'm seeing those things. He has an earnest affection for them, etc., etc. And I'm, and I'm saying, God, I don't love people like that. This is long before I come to this text, incidentally. I don't love people like that. Help me. Would you change that in me so that I'll love people like this? I don't even know the language that he's talking about. Earnest affection for people. I don't earnestly have affection for anybody. Heidi's not here. I would, uh, <laughs> oftentimes, <laughs> I even struggle with that, to be honest. I don't have earnest affection for anybody, but it's right here. I'm supposed to. You command it. Now I would introduce Deuteronomy 10. You tell me to love the sojourner. That's not even my wife. That's a stranger. You tell me to. I don't have it. Help. And oddly, what I'm finding is I love people a little more. I'm I'm grieved a little more over the things that grieve you. 
Now, it doesn't mean, and I'm not about to try to run down all 200 or 250 people here and deal with this and deal with this and help you with this. And, and if that's impossible, again, that's part of what the, that's a big piece what the community groups are about. I can't do that. The elders can't do that. You're supposed to do that. I equip you to do the work of the ministry. I don't do the work of the ministry. Of course, that is the work of the ministry, but I am to equip you to love you. Be the shoulder to cry on. To be the, the monetary assistance to. To be the gentle rebuke when somebody's wallowing in sin. It's all love. Love has many different flavors. But I'm finding that what happens is that God grows it in me a little bit. When, how, where, I don't know. But I take the word and in the spirit say, help. And somewhere along it comes a little more. There's not three steps there. Spirit, word, prayer, that's rather normal. But it's the heart attitude that takes the word and goes to the spirit in prayer wanting something. Not content to say, read my Bible today, around other people today, that's good enough. Not content with that. Who, uh, the heart that realizes if I'm going to say I am after God, I must be after people too. I want this and I want this help. I, I need you. And He Himself circumcises the heart by the Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Spirit lives in you. He wants to do this. Let Him. Take First Thessalonians. Read it through. Maybe he'll use that. Maybe he won't. Maybe you'll even say, where is the love in this? I don't even see it. It's mentioned a few times, but maybe he'll use something else. It's not where you go. Somewhere in the Scripture, everywhere in the Scripture, God will speak by the Spirit to change your heart. He shows himself to you. You see his glory. Your heart is changed. That's His grace at work in your life. Not removing requirement from you, but bringing requirement to you and then changing you so that you can gradually meet it. So you can become a person in heart sold to Him and in heart sold to others. He's the God of grace who requires and enables changed hearts in allegiance to Him. So go to Him in humble faith. Let me pray. Father, we are, I think, as a church, in need of You to do something among us by Your Spirit in our personal hearts and in our, our corporate heart to cut away some of the things that hold us away from you and away from each other. So I don't know, Lord, exactly what that looks like or exactly how you'll do it or in what ways, but would you please do it? Would you become our all in all? Would you become the one that we love, our praise? And would you build in us love for other people like you love them? Pray you do that, that your spirit would, would run through here and would find freedom to do what he pleases in our hearts. You would overwhelm us with him. That you would call gently and sometimes knock down the door. Whichever, both. Father, would you please move in our midst. Would you circumcise our hearts that we would follow after you in love for you and in love for others. And I pray this because I want Christ to be glorified in our midst and I want all of us to enjoy him fully forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.